everyone. I'm Emily Chang, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Today, we speak to some of tech's most up-and-coming Black leaders to unpack what is and isn't changing when it comes to racism in life and in business. This is an issue close to my heart that we've been reporting on for the better part of a decade, now in focus again in 2020, as it should always be. It was a death heard and felt around the world. The killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man, igniting a wave of historic protests. From corporate America to Silicon Valley. On this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Black Leadership Matters. I'm joined by Iman Abouzid, founder and CEO of Incredible Health, a hiring platform for nurses. Chris Bennett, the founder and CEO of the preschool and childcare network Wonderschool. Stephanie Lampkin, founder and CEO of Blendor, which makes software that helps companies manage and fight bias. And Tristan Walker, founder and CEO of Walker & Company, a maker of health and beauty products recently bought by Procter & Gamble. Thank you all so much for taking the time to do this. I'm so happy to, to have you all here. Yeah, excited. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Obviously, it's been an emotional last few months. And I want to know, how have you been experiencing the latest momentum behind the Black Lives Matter movement? Tristan, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's been an intense 16 weeks. Um, and the way I like to describe it, look, Walker & Company, we have a company that's almost 100% people of color. Uh, you know, we have black women majority in positions of leadership at my company. We are amidst two separate pandemics that disproportionately impact um, each of us. Um, and I've learned, at least in my capacity, that I've had to build um, a capacity for empathy uh, that I didn't realize that I would have had to have previously. It's unfortunate uh, that this situation is causing that. Um, but it at least gives me some hope um, that, you know, we're doing the right things for the company. And the thing that I'm, I'm, I like to tell our people is in moments like this, there are three things that are really critical. First, um, a forceful acknowledgement of the trauma that we're all facing, whether it be emotional or physical over these past 400 years, frankly. Um, second, uh, this idea of modeling the way, right? So really being in line with the values that we have and picking a side, right? That's something that we've done for a while. Um, and then lastly, action. You know, hope is not a strategy. It's an unreasonable kind of passion that forces you to not focus on the present. And there's a lot that we can be doing right now uh, in our capacity to help not only ourselves, but also our consumers and really respecting the fact that before we're employees and consumers, we're people first uh, who represent the audience that we're most impacted by. So it's, it's been a, a challenging 16 weeks. Um, but I'm motivated um, by our acknowledgement, modeling, and action uh, throughout this period. Iman, you're on the front lines of this from the perspective of healthcare. What kind of conversations have the protests sparked in your company, in your communities? Yeah, I think it's impacted us on a few different ways. So first, you know, we're, we're working with a group of healthcare workers and nurses that are a diverse population themselves. 30% of nurses identify as minorities. And, and at the same time, they are also serving a very diverse patient population. And so we've really had to consider uh, the impact of Black Lives Movement on, on both of those groups, nurses and patients. 
um, some of the things that we've had to do is uh, really, in terms of what Tristan was saying on action, is to really like double down on some of these uh, sub-communities that we serve. So, you know, an example of that is, you know, speeding up the launch and release of our free nurse salary estimator that nurses use to better negotiate when they're when they're uh, looking for a job on our platform um, and pairing every single nurse with a career coach and offering free continuing education to every nurse so they can uh, rapidly get their licenses. And so we're constantly looking at uh, what we can do to further empower this community that we serve. Um Chris, how about you? Obviously, you've got 800 schools on the Wonder School platform, and this is having a huge impact on parents and children. How has this been impacting you? Yeah, so one of the big motivators for me starting Wonder School is to tackle race in America. Um, traditionally, uh, children of a minority background don't get access to high quality early childhood education. One of the big motivators is making sure every child gets access. This movement uh, has really brought out and enhanced the mission of Wonder School, which has been really exciting. And it's allowed us to have a lot more, uh, I'd say engaging conversations with our team and also uh, with the, the providers on our platform. Um, the vast majority of the providers on the platform are women of color. Um, they, you know, have very diverse um, classrooms and we've provided anti-bias training. We, we've provided opportunities for our providers to connect with each other and process what's going on and created space for that. And, um, and we're planning to take, uh, you know, further measures around providing data around what's happening in the classroom when it comes to race. Stephanie Meantang, your company makes software aimed at improving diversity in hiring. You've got companies like Salesforce and Amazon using your product, and you found that there have been gains for women in the workforce, but in fact, for the black and brown community, representation has actually declined. Is that really the case? Yes, um, particularly at the senior leadership levels. Um, we have a product that analyzes board and executive diversity. Um, and so we've seen significant growth, over 30% growth for women on boards and in senior leadership. Uh, but the numbers for African-Americans, Latinos, and indigenous people have actually declined by 1% since we started measuring about six years ago. Why is that happening? Well, I think there's been a lot of optics around diversity and inclusion. A lot of companies making big pledges, um, shifting a lot of the focus to HR as opposed to really operationalizing um, diversity um, and really putting resources behind it. So you'll find a lot of DNI professionals are either in HR or marketing, but they aren't senior leaders in tech or in operations or in finance. So folks that really can pull the levers on how companies tackle this problem. Um, and also companies aren't doing a lot of measuring. You can't fix what you don't measure. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more attention being paid to the optics than the actual results. Now, I all want you to have a chance to tell your personal stories and to talk about how you got to where you are, how you achieved what you achieved, and, and the, the challenges that you overcame. Um, Iman, I'll start with you. Uh, you started out as, as a medical doctor, <laughs> a real doctor, right. and um, then became a tech founder. What was your path? Yeah, so for me, I started as a medical doctor, uh, worked in management consulting on the East Coast, did my MBA at Wharton, and then uh, led, uh, led product at an early stage healthcare technology company before founding uh, Incredible Health. 
And I mean, for me, so, you know, the majority of my working career has been in the U.S. And I'm actually originally from Sudan. I immigrated here back, you know, over 10 years ago. And so for me, look, this theme of of diversity and the challenges that Africans and African-Americans have in the workplace has been pretty constant throughout my career. Um, But and yet, despite that, uh, many of us, all of us on the phone have been have had have been able to overcome that. And a lot of that for me personally, the key to that was Yes, acknowledging that the structural bias exists in all industries, and we can talk about fundraising as well. And we have many of us have raised tens of millions in capital, including myself. And um, what what you have to do is, uh, for me mentally, is I acknowledge the structural bias. I know it's there, but then I have to very quickly move on because it can really mess up your thinking and your ambition if you keep thinking about it. Um, and to be honest with you, my our counterparts who are maybe white or male. They don't have that in their in their brains, right? So it's almost at a disadvantage if you if we if we keep focusing on that mentally. And I've had to just quickly move on and just the number one thing is to pursue the mission of the company and to get stuff done so we can all be the counter narrative to to what to the data that's already out there. What are some of the hurdles that you had to clear? I have walked into a venture capital firm in San Francisco and been mistaken as the Postmates delivery person, despite being dressed business casual. So, yes, these things do happen. And, 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 you know, there may be things happening that I'm not even aware of. Right. Um, But despite all of that, you just really have to push through. And the absolute most important thing that all of us can do is is to make sure we're successful CEOs. (laughs) And so we're just examples and role models um, for for this entire industry that we're in and the communities that we're in. Tristan, how about you? You worked at Foursquare, you worked at Twitter, and then you had an idea to start your own company and meet a need that wasn't being met, uh, making personal and beauty products uh, for the black community. And it took off. Talk to me about how you did that. Yeah. Um, it's important for me to set some context, um, particularly as we talk about diversity. And I have to lay it out on the table. I have incredible privilege. I am a cisgender black man, Stanford MBA educated on two public boards with the opportunity to have worked at Twitter and Foursquare with some experience on Wall Street. I had the good fortune to go to boarding school for high school on full scholarship. I am lucky, right? I'm one of the fortunate ones. You are on the board of Shake Shack and Foot Locker, just yes. for context. Um, and and that's, that's a part of the context that's, that's really important, right? Like I have incredible privilege um, and I am fortunate. So when I answer the question, I think it's important to kind of bring that context to bear, right? Um, because there's always the kind of rose that grew from concrete story, which I can kind of promulgate. But you, you and I have been speaking about this for the greater part of a decade, frankly. And, um, you know, it wasn't without work. Um, it wasn't without determination. Um, but it was with the respect um, for uh, what I felt I was uniquely positioned to do. Um, and in every single thing that I've done and all the things that you mentioned and all the things that I'm mentioning, I realized in that privilege that I have a responsibility to articulate this message of black economic empowerment. Um, And I think I can do it in a way that um, I think is effective and has proven effective. Um, So whether it's kind of, you know, Walker and company getting that started when folks didn't believe in it, right. And having folks like Procter and Gamble actually believe in it uh, when it came to folks like Foot Locker and Shake Shack, uh, providing me the opportunity to join their boards when it came to raising money for code 2040, uh, an organization I'm incredibly proud of that I started before all of this stuff, right. 
Um, you know, it's important to know that in that privilege, I have a responsibility to do the work, right? Um, because I am one of the lucky ones. You know, I remember speaking, I think, Chris, we probably spoke, gosh, years ago. Um, yeah. when it was like, yeah, first thinking about um, kind of fundraising. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's a part of that that um, responsibility, right? I had the great fortune uh, to be able to go through that myself. So it's my responsibility to speak transparently about the things that matter because I was able to go through it um, in the way that I did. So look, um, very fortunate, very lucky. There's still some more work to do, um, but I think each of us on this call, as Amon had mentioned, can do that uniquely well and we have a responsibility to do so. Tell me about some of those early conversations, Chris, and what it was like raising money as a, a black founder in, in mostly white Silicon Valley. Yeah, so Tristan may not even remember this, but he, I met Tristan, Tristan, we met in 2010. You spoke at a NUMI event <laughs> when we were- uh, I remember. Yeah, and so um, what was it like fundraising? Um, so I've been fundraising, I've been in the Valley since 2010, 2009 actually, and I've been fundraising my whole career here. And, and I've gone through different um, phases of fundraising, I'd say, where I was, you know, knew three people in, in San Francisco and had no idea what, you know, uh, how, to, how to build a venture-backed company or how to build a company that, you know, could achieve venture scale. Um, and, you know, fundraising during those times were really challenging because I really just had no idea what I was doing. And I didn't, really have anyone coaching me on how to figure that out. And then over time, I started to wise up and, and learn about um, how to position the company in the right way, how to come up with an idea that uh, could be much larger. And through a lot of failure, learned a lot about the, the tips and tricks to, to raising around. And I raised my first seed round in 2011, I believe it was roughly 2011, 2012. Um, and then you can fast forward to, you know, with Wonder School, we raised our Series A in uh, 2018. And we raised a $20 million Series A from um, led by Andreessen Horowitz. And when it comes to, you know, being a black founder and, and fundraising, it's, it's sort of, as sort of Amon mentioned, there's a lot of microaggressions, but they're so micro, you, you don't even really know. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to pick up on them. And also you're the only person in the room. So it's not like you can see what it's like for other people to fundraise. So you only have your data to, to, to go off of, but I can tell you it's really hard. And I just, and I just operate with this idea that uh, when I'm fundraising, it's always going to be hard. And I always need to talk to a lot of people. So uh, I typically talk to 60 to hundred people when I'm raising around and I, I'm sort of used to that. Even, even though I'm in a position where I likely don't have to do that anymore, it's just like very, very normal for me because uh, I've just found it to be a lot, I found it to be challenging. Did any of you do anything differently? You know, I've done a lot of coverage on women in tech and you know, they'll wear their hair in a ponytail or won't wear a skirt or won't get their nails done. I don't think I've made attempts to change myself per se. I grew up from a family that um, has always been very proud of our identity. But I will say after having been in Silicon Valley since 2002, I think I may be um, the longest tenure out there, um, I realized just the, the importance of relationships. Like a lot of these companies and a lot of these funds are formed from folks who went to Stanford together, from folks who go to Burning Man together, 
Um, and so I've placed a lot more importance on building authentic relationships and showing up in, you know, in my pure and authentic self. And I think that's made a bit of a difference, but I don't think necessarily trying to be something that you're not will achieve the end goal because people can really see through it. And in the end, you know, the truth will be revealed. So, um, yeah, for me, it's just been about relationship building. So on that note, Stephanie, you've been coding since you were 13, a developer at 15. You got an engineering degree at Stanford, all the right schools, multiple years at Microsoft. And yet when you applied for jobs, people told you you weren't technical enough. How did you overcome that? Well, you know, it's a pattern. Um, all throughout my academic career, um, I've gone to predominantly white schools. I've had people in power underestimating my abilities. So it's gotten to the point where it's so normalized for me. Um, and kind of like what Iman alluded to, you just have to push through. Um, because people cannot see you. They are incapable. Um, in large part because there aren't a lot of examples of people like us who have been successful. So I've kind of just had to be like a horse with blinders on and move forward and say kind of, you know, your loss um, and, and not let that deter me from doing what needs to be done. So I built the first version of the app um, completely myself as a technical founder and then moved to Silicon Valley to raise capital from female funds. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Black Leadership Matters. This is my conversation with Iman Abuzid, founder and CEO of Incredible Health, Chris Bennett, the founder and CEO of Wonder School, Stephanie Lampkin, founder and CEO of Blendor, and Tristan Walker, founder and CEO of Walker & Company. Up next, how artificial intelligence can be used to tackle discrimination and how rising Black and Latinx workers are experiencing life and work in Silicon Valley. Tristan, your work through Code 2040, you are working to get the most talented black and brown students into Silicon Valley. And I'm curious what trends you've seen in their experiences. So, so Emily, one thing people might not know, you were my first TV interview. This was, what, 10 years ago? Something I like remember that? that and remember it well. Do you remember what we were talking about back then? We, we were talking about this. We were talking about Code 2040. So, you know, I think that really answers the question. Nothing has changed. Uh, you know, some of the stuff that Stephanie had mentioned, you know, it's gotten worse. Um, and, you know, if nothing's going to change, you know what, I'm going to triple down on my own personal uniqueness. You know what, I can do better than you can on the other side of the table, kind of, you know, reconcile with myself the uniqueness of my blackness, right? And there is such a kind of specialness in that. Uh, and when we speak to kind of our Code 2040 fellows or anyone associated with the organization, it's you are unique because of that, right? Um, you see things that folks on the other side of the table will never be able to. Uh, and there is a beauty in that, right? Um, so, you know, look, it's frustrating. I, I'm no longer in Silicon Valley, right? I was one of its greatest evangelists, and I continue to be disappointed uh, by the lack of progress, but I continue to be inspired by our, our uh, kind of incredible progress um, that we're kind of, whether it's Stephanie, Iman, Chris, 
uh, we recognize, but also recognize what we needed to do to kind of navigate around that hairball. <laughs> Is that why you left? Is that why you moved to Atlanta? I think that there are two reasons why I left. First, professionally, our consumers are here. Culture happens here. You know, I believe black culture leads all global culture. I believe, you know, when you think about the blue ocean opportunity for consumerism, I'd like to go to where folks who look like me are. I think um, this idea of the celebration of black economic empowerment is the greatest opportunity of my lifetime, whether it be for profit or not for profit. Personally, um, you know, I want to be around more folks who look like me. I'm raising two boys, two black boys, one almost six years old, one a little over one. And when we kind of came out to Atlanta to visit, I've shared this story a, a couple of times and it's a true story. Um, I came out with my son. He was four at the time. Um, we went back to Palo Alto and I remember I was walking him to the grocery store and my son, four years old, he said, daddy, in, in Atlanta is where all the black people are. In Palo Alto is where all the white people are, right? Now, he's like a four-year-old, and his recognition of that really had such a profound impact on me, so much so that I had to realize, you know what? He's been privileged to go to the best schools, and he's never had a Black classmate at the time. He didn't have a Black teacher. He did not have a Black head of school, um, and that became a problem for me. You know, now here in Atlanta, at his school, he has a Black headmaster, Black professor, right? Uh, black students, um, and that diversity imperative um, is all connected in the things that I care so deeply about. Um, so many reasons, but that's really the, the crux of it. You all broke through. So many people didn't. So many people haven't. How do we change that? Iman? I think about that in three different levels. So one, just what personally I can do. So I do double down on helping other black founders, whether it's fundraising, hiring, growth, product, whatever it is that they need. Um, and, and, you know, I'm paying it forward, right? Chris has helped me in the past. I am very involved in one of Stephanie's organizations, Visible Figures, which is black female CEOs that I support all the time, you know, often. We're helping each other. So that's on a personal level. Uh, in terms of just the company and my team, um, Diversity is important on our team. I'm proud to have a very diverse team of all political views, colors, whatever it is, because at the end of the day, we're building product and we're building technology for a very diverse population. And uh, that is something that's core to our mission is to help healthcare professionals live better lives. So we need to take care of all the healthcare professionals. Um, and then just on the on, in terms of the industry and the commu larger community that we're all part of, I am really, you know, banging my fists on the table as well as writing, you know, through writing and so on, um, trying to get uh, investors and operators to change their thinking on diversity. And I think a big piece that's really missing is how diversity drives business results. There's so much research now that shows it drives profitability, drives more revenue, diverse teams making decisions faster and so on. Um, and in fact, they also drive, diverse teams drive better returns. And to really keep emphasizing that message, which is a very capitalist message, but I really do think that's the only message that's going to get through to operators and investors in the industries that we're in. You are absolutely right. The research shows that diverse teams are more innovative, make more money and produce better results. Stephanie, you're doing a lot of work in AI. You know, talk to us about how we build that AI to actually serve the world. Yeah, I mean, the low-hanging fruit is just hiring black and brown software engineers um, and leveraging diverse data sets. I think one of the missing pieces here that some companies are starting to get 
right, is algorithms can't be race blind because people are not race blind. So we just recently got an email from Airbnb, for example. They're now going to go in and look at your photos to determine your race so that they can track cases of discrimination on the platform. So instead of the traditional mindset of, oh, we should just not think about race or include it in the metadata, it's now being included so that we can keep our algorithms accountable much the same way that we expect people to. So whether it be through hiring or through baking in this information in your data sets and your algorithms, um, I think a lot has to do with just thinking more critically about how to solve the problem. Well, so how do we talk about this? You know, is it unconscious bias? Is it conscious? It's all of the above. It's a very, very multifaceted problem. I mean, we consume information daily, whether it be online or in TV, in our movies, that tell us certain people are a certain way. And it impacts the way that we think. It impacts the way that cops operate, right? Whether you know it or not. And so that's the piece of unconscious bias that I particularly um, have built systems to try to address. But some people are just racist or sexist or xenophobic. And you know, there's not gonna be technology built that can solve that, but there can be systems put in place to hold people accountable for that behavior. So what are some concrete things that companies and leaders can do to build a more diverse workforce. Chris? To build a more diverse workforce, um, I'd say it's really important to start at the, the top of the organization. So board members, um, executives, one of the big beliefs I have is making sure that, yeah, the leadership team and the board is diverse will lead to more uh, diverse candidates being interested in applying to the organization and um, feeling safe at the organization. So staying at the organization when they join. Um, I think another really important piece is being vocal about diversity. So, you know, uh, making statements when, when, when the right opportunity is there, um, uh, you know, celebrating diversity within the organization and just, and just sharing with the world that you value it. And then I, I, the last the last way I think of it is just in the product or the, or the service that you provide. So at Wonder School, we make a, a really big point in attracting diverse customers, celebrating the diversity of our customers and supporting them. Uh, I like, Stephanie, what you were saying about what's going on at Airbnb and how they're embracing, you know, the race components of their platform. And I think doing things like that at your company play a role in, 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 in attracting talent to the organization. It's interesting that you mentioned Airbnb because Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, was the last guest on the show. And we talked about this and he was pretty, it, it certainly felt like brutally honest about their, their lack of improvement so far and wanting to hold himself to account and feels like Silicon Valley has sort of shirked its, its, its responsibilities to make those changes when you've got the smartest people in the world, the richest companies in the world, why can't they make this change? Tristan, you've done this at, at your own company. I mean, the vast majority of your employees are people of color. You are selling products now on Target and on Amazon. You got bought by Procter & Gamble. How did you make that happen? I mean, we told the truth. Diversity is incredibly sexy, right? I mean, we are the majority of the world. And let's not forget it, right? Like we can play from a position of strength here, right? Uh, serving the needs of an audience that is the most culturally influential demographic group on the planet. 
that spends more money and stuff than anybody else on the planet, right? Um, has a drive um, for values and picking on a, uh, picking a side kind of more particularly uh, given kind of what we go through than other folks on the planet. Um, so for me, you know, I don't know anything else, right? I've been able to build this organization from scratch. And the, the reason I think we've been able to um, is because I, I recognize that words matter. Right. When it comes down to, you know, values and the definition of those values, I mean, you and I have spoken about this in the past. You know, we talk about courage and inspiration and respect and judgment, and wellness and loyalty. Um, those are um, not race specific. Those are not gender specific. Right. Those are values that I think everyone can really um, value. Uh, and it's important uh, that we keep those values intrinsic within the organization, whether we're interviewing folks and asking leading questions to get at the heart of them, uh, when we're doing annual, semi-annual reviews, right, to kind of rate them against their values uh, adherence in, in addition to goal attainment. This is the stuff that structurally allows it to persist. Um, so whether or not I'm in the room or out of the room, you know, you won't walk in a company and be around 150 years from now. I'm not going to live that long, right? Um, but these values need to continue to carry. Um, and I think being deliberate uh, about the word choice and the implementation of those things have allowed us uh, to do it. There are companies that say things like bias to action, right? Or, um, you know, that can be in, uh, construed as gender specific, right? Um, you know, how do we actually create inclusiveness and belonging uh, with the words that we choose? So uh, I'd like to think that that's a part of our success. I don't know any alternative. How do you make sure the people that you're bringing to the table have a voice at the table? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I made a commitment to myself when I started the company, uh, when I wrote down those values. Those are my personal values. I made a commitment not to hang out with anyone personally who does not share those things, to not work with people who share those things, um, to not make decisions that aren't in line with those things, right? So like attracts like in this case, right? Um, but it's not about the kind of subjective, oh, you like to play golf or you like this video game or you make me laugh. It's like, here are things that you know, we can discuss. And frankly, what that enables is an opportunity for people to use the appropriate language to speak out when they see that we're veering off that path, right? So if I have a junior person uh, within the organization, now here's language, right? When speaking to someone who manages them, hey, you know, I don't feel that you were being loyal to our customer when you did so-and-so, right? Or I don't think you practice good judgment in this example, right? So I, I like to hope and think we're not perfect there yet, um, but that language um, is empowering for people to say what they believe and, and pick their side. How do you know when a company is just trying to check a box? Stephanie. Well, we developed a score, an index and a ranking called Blend Score, which actually looks at a lot of those boxes and a lot more to see the representation and results of some of their efforts. So some of the feedback we got initially was, well, what happens if people just do all of these things so that they can improve their score, which is a lot of box checking, right? Well, inevitably, a lot of those things will lead to more inclusive and equitable behavior. So it's a win-win. But we are trying to combat the, um, the tendency for companies to say that they're doing things that aren't actually yielding any results. So one of the ways that we've tried to do that is make the score public, make the methodology public, really differentiate the companies that are putting their money where their mouth is. But I think there can be some benefit to the box checking behavior, particularly if it's connected to results. 
This is a special edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Black Leadership Matters. You're listening to my conversation with Iman Abuzi, founder and CEO of Incredible Health, Chris Bennett, the founder and CEO of Wonder School, Stephanie Lampkin, founder and CEO of Blendor, and Tristan Walker, the founder and CEO of Walker & Company. Coming up, the pandemic's impact on education, healthcare, and employment in the black and brown community. And is this the moment, 2020, that will be a real turning point for race in America? I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. The pandemic has created this massive shift to remote work. We don't know how long it's going to be this way, but you've got companies saying employees can work from home forever. Iman, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, so it definitely could be an opportunity. But when it comes to diversifying the team, though, there's, I guess there's like three or four ta- very tactical things that we've done um, to make sure that happens, including in a remote, you know, in the remote setting we're currently in. Others have said it before, you have to set it as an objective. Um, the second is diversify your HR team. The, the people doing the hiring need to be diverse as well because they're bringing access to more networks. Um, the third thing is to start really early. Uh, there's a concept called diversity debt, similar to technical debt, in that it is very, it's, it's faster and easier to actually build a homogenous team, but you're going to pay for it later because when you, when you do want to hire that star black engineer, they're not going to join an all-white team. And so starting, starting early is, is, is critical. So it, it, it's, you know, Brian's going to have a harder time than me, frankly, <laughs> to, to diversify his team because it's, he's doing it at a much later stage. Um, and then the fourth piece is on the inclusion uh, policies. And this is like across many HR policies. But once you do have diverse talent, you have to make sure that they feel included. And that goes to, um, you know, the way you, you run meetings, making sure there's agendas beforehand, materials sent out beforehand. You have an obligation to dissent in that you reward people for speaking up in meetings. And you have policies like flexible work schedules. So whether it's a working mom or wh- whoever, is, they're able to be their best at work. Ellen Powell, who famously sued her venture capital firm, Kleiner Perkins, for gender discrimination, is looking into new forms of discrimination and harassment that can emerge in remote settings, whether it's on Zoom or Slack. Are you guys at all concerned about that? There's definitely some concerns about engagement. Um, We've already seen some early evidence that certain folks aren't invited to certain Zoom calls that they may have otherwise known about had they been in a on-site setting. Um, But I think what makes me optimistic is that now all of this is traceable and trackable. We have natural language processing analyzers that can look at the emails and the Slack messages that you're sending to certain demographics of people to identify where there could be instances of bias. So these receipts, so to speak, were really hard to have um, before now. But given everything is digital, we can do a much better job of holding people accountable. That's That's my favorite word, accountability. What about investors? I mean, I know a number of you got funding from Andreessen Horowitz um, and venture capitalists in Silicon Valley are still overwhelmingly white and male. How do we hold investors to account? Tristan? I mean, uh, I think Iman alluded to it. We we have to succeed. You know, it's 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 unfortunate that like, you know, that's all that it is and that's what it's going to take. And even then, I'm, I'm not sure that that's enough. So I think there's another thing that we need to focus on. Um, There are if I just take kind of black businesses, there are two and a half million in this country, right? Um, you know, this isn't about funding just a black technology entrepreneur. 
we might not hire any black people, <laughs> right? Um, what about the two and a half million dollar small businesses that exist, half of which have just gotten wiped out because of COVID-19? Like, what are those folks going to do? Uh, how do we think about kind of enabling those folks? Um, I think that there's even a greater crisis of, um, you know, funding kind of those small businesses that could have been profitable, could have been thriving, et cetera. Um, so I think it's, it's also important to ensure that we don't continue to acknowledge this kind of masters of the universe mentality uh, from the moneyed interest, right, which can creep in a lot of the time because there are a lot more opportunities that don't require any venture capitalists uh, that can allow people to thrive. And then lastly, the thing that I had to realize when I sold my company, which is really wonderful for me, is there is a freedom in ownership um, that I would have never experienced until I had sold my company, right? And it gave me a different perspective about the types of companies I wanted to build. Not everybody can or should build a billion dollar company, right? Like I find myself most jealous of the folks who have their positive cash flow generating $5 million in EBITDA uh, in their home in North Carolina that no one knows about, right? There are other pathways um, to acquiring kind of that dream that you have for yourself that venture capitalists don't have to be responsible for. You all have really unique perspectives in your own industries on the pandemic. Um, you know, on that note, Chris, I know you've been dealing with school closures and the cascading impact that's going to have on various communities. You know, what is your outlook on how COVID impacts the education sector and our children? Yeah, it's pretty scary to be, to be honest because um, it's it's being announced on a on a daily basis now. But school districts across the country are are closing for the fall, and and it, it seems like you know they'll likely you know not open um, in the spring as well. And there's this trend that's happening in America right now um, called like pandemic pods or, or trust pods, where parents are grouping up and getting their children together and sort of monopolizing teachers. Um, teachers are, 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 are finding themselves in very high demand right now because these pods are trying to recruit um, teachers. And what this is, what the trends we're seeing, what this is leading to is those who have the best connections and the, and the, and the most money are able to, to, to monopolize these teachers and utilize them for the fall and for the spring. And my concern is that this is going to set back a large generation, a, a large number of children, um, a generation of children. Who's going to be hurt the most by this? It's, it's still hard to tell, but it's, it, it's the folks who aren't going to have access to those teachers. Um, that, and I think that's the clearest one. Um, and the folks who aren't, and the children that aren't going to get access to the, the correct social emotional um, education that they need uh, to, to an academic education they're, they're going to need during these times. Are you concerned about how this will impact the black community? I mean, do you think this will have a disproportionate impact on the black community? What's interesting for Wonder School is Wonder School has primarily been a uh, preschool. So we primarily work with children between the ages of zero and five. And what we're seeing with um, childcare is there's a large number of in-home childcare programs that already exist in a lot of families. A lot of childcare centers are closing because of shelter in place. And those children are going to family in-home childcare programs. And it seems like there is, this is a, a, a widespread um, problem, but, I, but 
for the K to 12 sector where a large number of black children are, are in the pub in public schools. Um, I, I'm really worried about how it's going to affect, um, you know, the black population. Is this going to be a lost year for our children? For some. Um, and I think that's the, the, the scary part. Um, it's, it's going to be a lost year for some and, and, and um, our most disadvantaged children and, and disadvantaged families. Iman, how about you? You're on the front lines of the first responders helping nurses get jobs at hospitals. How does this play out? The pandemic has definitely exacerbated inequalities in healthcare too. So even, bef even before the pandemic, black patients, even when you control for everything else, age, insurance, so on, got worse care and had higher mortality when they went to hospitals. So that's just like an uncomfortable reality that we live in. They, do, they actually get worse care. Um, when the pandemic happened, we saw a huge shift into digital health and telemedicine. And unfortunately, similar to what Chris is saying, not every family in America has, has an iPad or a laptop at home uh, and can access telemedicine services. Um, and so the thinking now is the pandemic is going to further make, make inequality here even worse. Um, it's something that we're very conscious of. And as we're supporting uh, nurses and hospitals with, with hiring, we're continually adding more and more services that support, uh, that support these communities too. Um, an example is free continuing education for every nurse in America. So that's available online so they can immediately uh, activate their licenses instead of paying out of pocket, which is what nurses used to have to do. Stephanie, we've seen record joblessness short only of the Great Depression. You know, what does this mean for, for jobs across the country? I don't think we're ever going to see um, jobs rebound uh, to the levels that they were before COVID. I mean, really? We were already on the verge of, you know, this supercharge and automation and displacement of a lot of jobs um, held by blue collar workers. And I think COVID-19 is only going to accelerate that. So it really is going to be the responsibility of the public and private sector to figure out a way to ensure that people can still make a living. Um, and it's going to have to be something very innovative. We're also hearing that another wave of small businesses may close, you know, those businesses that were hanging on through the first wave who just can't make it work through another wave of this. Tristan, what do you see for retail? You know, it's, it's, it's very strange, um, primarily because, you know, here I am sitting with the companies that I have um, and we are seeing record months of sales. It's, it, it cr it's created an incredible dissonance. Like everything's crazy <laughs> right now. Um, my biggest fear, and this naturally, look, I mean, it's, it's the capitalist imperative. There are a lot of companies out there with a lot of cash. There are a lot of companies out there with a lot of money. There are a lot more companies out there with not as much. Um, there will be consolidation, <laughs> right? Um, now, um, you know, can that scale and consolidation actually help influence from a platform perspective, um, kind of lower prices, that sort of thing? Um, perhaps uh, assuming kind of those founders or those leaders, um, you know, feel that that's the right thing to do, right? Um, but capitalism is capitalism. I think that there's an inevitability, unfortunately, into some of this consolidation. And as I mentioned a little earlier, you know, it's not that some businesses will go out of business. They just are already, right? 
Um, and I fear for those folks who are already um, uh, kind of disadvantaged in that way and not having access to capital, not being able to get the loans that they needed to thrive, PPP, all that stuff. Um, they're going to be the moneyed interest that come in and acquire those things at value, right? And you're going to further widen this gap between the haves and the have-nots, right? Um, you know, that's why I got so excited about technology and the ability to kind of catch us back up, right, and kind of tighten that curve. But I think, as Stephanie said, there's a permanence to some of this stuff um, that is going to be unfortunate and really force the country um, to think about something that we hadn't thought before, right? I, I think that's the only path forward. We're in an ongoing health crisis, economic crisis, and now a social crisis. And for the first time, you wonder if our children, I find myself wondering if my children are actually going to be growing up in a better world than I did. And I don't know the answer to that. I think I do. I, I like I um, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and, um, you know, look, we're all the age that we are. Um, but the youth, man, they are ahead of the game. <laughs> right. On all the stuff that we're talking about, their motivation, their excitement, their ability to see things differently, you know, I have to have the hope um, that they're going to look at all the potential mistakes that we made, learn from them, and be motivated, right? You know, when I see folks out there on the streets, right, in support um, of some of these very important movements, right, you know, gosh, could you imagine if, if folks weren't, <laughs> right? Um, and I have to have hope when I see old, young, right? Um, across ethnicity, age groups, all that really kind of coalescing around a progressivism uh, that this country has never seen before. Um, you know, these next few years are going to be really telling uh, for our ability to break through it. Um, but if, if we don't have that hope, man, um, you know, we're all in trouble. Um, but I'm inspired by them. So on that note, how are you talking to your children about race? How are you talking to the next generation that the millennials are you know, the people who are younger than millennials now <laughs> at your companies? Yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I mean, I, I've seen research that shows millennials and Gen Z in two areas. First of all, they are not afraid to penalize companies whose values are conflict with their own. And so that's where you see these rapid changes that companies have to make when they have Juneteenth app filters that are inappropriate or you know, c communities that discriminate online and, and so on, right? So they're, they're holding companies accountable. And then the second uh, piece is I've seen um, millennials and Gen Z are also unwilling to join companies or less willing to join companies that are not diverse. So that brings a whole thing to the competitive advantage of, of diverse companies. If you can't get talent because they don't want to join your team, that is going to be increasingly problematic. And so it's becoming a, a higher and higher priority to, to, to get a lot of these issues fixed. So at this moment in time, how optimistic are you that we will make real change, that we will look back on this point in history as an actual turning point? I'm very optimistic. Um, I think a lot of things don't change until there's some major catastrophic event. I mean, people are just waking up in ways that they needed to. And whether it be through the next generation or the technology or the growth um, in social impact investing, I think everyone is sort of coming together and understanding that you need to do good while you make money in the world. Um, so I'm very optimistic that the results of this will be positive. I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm naturally uh, a very optimistic person. But I, I do have, I do have mixed feelings. Uh, uh, you know, when I 
when Christian was talking about how, you know, we're having the same conversation 10 years later. Um, <laughs> it, I, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. There's a lot of downward pressure um, around, around this movement, but um, you know, I, I've dedicated my my life to this. I think this is this is the most important. Uh, these um, solving for racism and, and creating a, a world where uh, there's equality around opportunities and around education, around uh, professional opportunities. I think is something you know absolutely worth fighting for. Um, and so, it's something I'm very committed to changing. I think it's inevitable. Um... Yeah, I, I believe in human ingenuity. Um, I think it's one over time. I believe in the diversity imperative. I believe that the stats that we're seeing in terms of growth and influence scale faster than that ingenuity too, right? And I think the combination of those things creates an inevitable force um, for um, the right change um, in line with the conversation we just had previously about the youth, right? I think we'll look back on this time um, as having been a part um, of probably one of the most transformative um, moments for the world. <laughs> um, again, if, if I don't believe in those two things, man, it'd be a terrible life to live right now. But I, I do fundamentally believe uh, in those two things. The big question for me is how long it's going to take. I mean, I know it's going to get better. The question is, is it going to be over two years, 10 years, 20 years? Um, and uh, for me, like all, all we can really do is just focus on our missions and, and win, honestly. <laughs> Thank you for telling your incredible stories and continuing to break down these walls. Thank you, Iman Abouzid, Tristan Walker, Stephanie Lampkin, and Chris Bennett. So glad you could join us. Thank you. Thank you. Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Chang. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson, with special help from Mallory Abelhausen. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.